Welcome to Offscript. Tune in every week to hear the stories of and insights from NPs. We're your hosts, Maxine and Danielle, two technologists who are passionate about the future of patient care. Our guest today is Eileen Sandifer, a pediatric nurse practitioner who has worked at the same private practice for the past 20 years. Eileen loves to teach and has served as a clinical preceptor for numerous students. She has always enjoyed working with teens and had the unique opportunity to set up a clinic for homeless adolescents in California. Eileen has a lot of wisdom across all of these experiences. Today we discuss Eileen's experience and personal growth as an NP in pediatric private practice, her clinical tips for treating children and adolescents, and her advice for NPs more broadly. To start, Eileen, could you please give us a brief one-sentence intro? Sure. Uh, Good afternoon. I'm Eileen Sandifer, a PMP, and I'm really excited for my first podcast and to share some experiences with you. So thanks for having me today. Well, we're so excited to have you. So thanks for taking the time. We'd love to start by talking about the arc of your career, your lessons learned, and, and any advice you may have for NPs. So to start, how has your role as a nurse practitioner evolved over the years? And how have you approached your continued professional development? Uh, so it, interestingly, when I started out as a PNP uh, almost 31 years ago, which sounds sort of like a dinosaur, um, I started at St. Christopher's Hospital working with chronic, chronically ill children with uh, pediatric HIV. And so that was an academic institution. It was a very, um, did a lot of research as well as hands-on clinical, then ended up moving because of uh, my husband going back to grad school, ended up in Boston and also working at Boston Children's Hospital, so another academic institution, a little bit of research, but a lot of clinical care with hemophilia. And then moving to DC a couple of years later, working at the NIH, doing pediatric research. So linking back with what I had done at St. Chris um, and doing uh, primary care as well as research. Then moved to Philadelphia, back to where I'm from, um, after a few years and uh, was home for a couple of years taking care of kids, then went back part time and found this opportunity at Valley, although not working with chronically ill kids, it was um, a great way to get back to primary care and just general care. And I had a lot of flexibility. So it's kind of been uh, a little interesting route that I wouldn't have necessarily planned out in an organized way, but it has evolved nicely. Um, and how I stay um uh, connected and up to date on things is really through my local nurse practitioner group, SNAPNAP, through my national group, conferences, CEUs, and then a group of my colleagues from grad school who get together um, uh, at least once a year to go over um, our exams and things like that. So it's actually been kind of a neat way to, to stay abreast of things. That's amazing. And it's nice to be able to maintain a community of people you care about through also um, that kind of peer education. So that sounds mm-hmm. lovely. Yeah. Thanks for that overview. Um, throughout your your time, did you have mentors or role models who guided you in your journey? And how did their influence shape shape your career choices? Great question. Absolutely. And, and when I think about over my whole career, it, it's been different people at different times. So I remember my first uh, mentor, really someone who introduced me to a nurse practitioner, I didn't even know it was a thing, was when I worked for Covenant House in LA and the LA Free Clinic, who we linked with a little bit, had a nurse practitioner who went to the homeless shelters 
uh, to take care of the population and do their primary care and, and episodic uh, care. And she was going on maternity leave and she said, you know, these kids, um, the docs and I want you to fill in for me. And I'm, I'm like, uh, I didn't even know, you know, I didn't know how to prescribe. I didn't know really what I was doing, but, um, the fact that they had the faith in me and the confidence, they literally gave me a, a leather, uh, briefcase full of medications and so a few little outlines and their phone number and said, call us when you have questions. And so I'd go into kitchens and room, various rooms at free clinics or, or shelters to see these kids that many of whom I knew through the, the small world of, of homelessness um, and do their, their primary care. But when I think about it now, it's like, oh my gosh, beyond a liability nightmare. And the fact that it was Stevie Wonder leading Ray Charles on some levels, <laughs> but I also loved it. And I was like, this is amazing. And if I had the education behind me and the certification, I'll be even doing more amazingly. <laughs> so, so she was my first like mentor inspiration. Uh, this is a nurse practitioner. So then I was realized I had to go back and, and go to school and become an NP. And then at different times during my career in different roles where I worked, there were different mentors many of whom were NPs, but some physicians as well. That's a beautiful story. It's so nice to hear how someone had the confidence in you and the faith in you, and you were able to really take that to, to new heights. Um, I'm curious, how did you decide to go into teaching and mentoring yourself, and how has that influenced your career path? It's funny because I literally have a new student from Penn who just started last week, and I realize how jazzed up I get to teach, that when I'm doing clinical precepting and I'm explaining things and things that seem so intuitive to me, again, many years into the career um, and freak out newer people who are like, oh my gosh, I don't know how to do it. I've realized how energized I get. So so that how it started when I was in nursing school, literally we'd get a sort of impromptu study group together and write things on the chalkboard just to sort of burn things into our brain when we were studying for exams. And I was always the one at the chalkboard and I felt like when I was teaching it, you're learning it so much better yourself. So um, I, I think it was just a, a natural uh, thing that I enjoyed. And I've just been really happy in recent years when I've really gotten to exercise that a lot. Yeah, and it's fun to look back and see the different students I've had and sort of how they're different, you know, where they land in their NP jobs. And it, it's it's a very gratifying feeling to to teach. Yeah, there, there's so much to learn from teaching and also there's so mm -hmm. much impact to, to be had for both students and, and patients, obviously. So the fact that you get both of those pieces is really nice. The students keep me up to speed. I always say, tell me if there's anything we're doing here that's different than what you're learning in school. And so it's it's also a great way for me to stay, uh, you know, up on, on current things. Definitely. It's a good way to stay close to the new experiences and the new technologies and so on. As both a student and a teacher, are there any um, learning experiences or challenges that really stand out over the past few years? Well, the challenges, I feel like, evolve. Like when I think back to when I first started and to now, I think the thing that's really become a challenge in primary care is in mental health issues with, with younger kids and teens. Um, and trying to to link families with resources and and support kids as best we can. So I feel like that's been a real learning curve um, and a, a challenge that, again, in 10 or 15 minutes in a room with a patient, when you have a lot of territory to cover to try to, to do well. 
So I think mental health issues, the challenges with obesity, challenges with isolation and loneliness, the, you know, that they weren't as pressing at the beginning of my career, but certainly that's been more of an issue towards the, you know, the latter part. Absolutely. That is, those are all things that are clearly on the rise and have a huge impact on patients' lives. And when you only have so many minutes then to address all of those really big critical issues, that that's a big job. It is, yeah. Given your vast clinical experience, we'd love to hear more about your unique style as a clinician. We're curious what sets your approach to patient care apart from others. What I would say that is unique about me and what I think nurse practitioners do really, really well is to teach and to really um, make patients comfortable. And that sounds like a simple thing, but I think by making patients comfortable, you can allow them to be vulnerable with you and to give honest responses. So just by learning your techniques and learning how to collaborate with patients and, and connect with them. Um, I had a, a patient yesterday, we went into the room and the, the teenagers like stiff and tense and stressed. And then by the end of the visit, there was a conversation, find out what her favorite class is and what she likes and what she's worried about. And I would say probably that's my sort of secret sauce would be disarming the patients, putting them at ease and trying to put complex medical things in very basic patient terms. And when I think when you talk in a very comfortable, nonchalant way about everything, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, as I call it, you get people to, to ask those questions that maybe they otherwise wouldn't ask. Makes so much sense also with your love for teaching and education of if you can feel like you're really partnering with your patient to understand them and to educate them and to speak the same language as them, it really changes the experience for the patient and probably the way you're able to, to deliver care. Absolutely. Yeah. What advice would you give to individuals aspiring to become nurse practitioners? First, I would just say, I think we all like to plan and to think about this is the route that I'm going to go and don't become married to, I'm going to do this, this, and this. Just be open to the opportunities that, that arise because you don't know what could be down the road or through your network or through your first job, an avenue that, that could be open. So I'd say more than anything, keep the doors open, learn from other people, any of your colleagues, any folks that you collaborate with, physicians, nurse practitioners, nurses, just be open to learning because they all can teach you amazing things. And it's wonderful to sort of put in your little cookbook of recipes of how you're going to care for patients. So I would say those are the most important things and be approachable with patients because that connection is going to allow you to give good care at the end of the day. It's really about the trust, the connection that allows people to, to keep coming back, to feel comfortable, to, you know, to open up to you. That's wonderful advice. How about advice that you'd give to NPs that are already in their career, but maybe a few years in? Is there anything different that you'd mention for them? say the same and also just really staying abreast of trends. If you're not currently part of the local, your local nurse practitioner group for peds, obviously it's NAPNAP. For adults, the, the adult uh, practice groups, I think it's a great way. Like when I was first out of school and younger, no kids, I was very actively involved in my nurse practitioner group. I was on leadership and, and it's a great way to be networked and tuned into people that work in completely different areas of practice. Great, not just for eventual job situations, but just for collaborating about things and forming friendships. So I would say, you know, getting involved, staying up to speed on legislation and changing times in that regard and being involved in, in actively campaigning for things that, that 
serve your uh, nurse practitioner groups and your patients well. So I, I would say those would probably be the most important things. I think that is such a valuable way to think about when you're first getting started, just be open to learning, be open to what your career path might look like. Don't worry too much about the individual minutia planning and, and be open to what you might be able to learn. And then once you're in your career, then engage and give back and, and try and offer things that you can still gain, gain a lot from, it sounds like. Absolutely. Yeah. We know that one interesting aspect of your day-to-day is that your practice doesn't use an EHR, which is quite rare in, in this day and age. Um, could you please tell us a bit about the benefits of this approach that people might not expect quite as much and also your thoughts on some of the drawbacks? Uh, great question. I feel like it comes up all the time. Every time I get a new student, I always say to them, welcome to the 1950s. We don't have electronic medical records. At the end of their time with me, interestingly, that's one of the things that they're all very freaked out about. If they've come from, you know, they're, they're uh, you know, younger and they're used to everything electronic and they come from, a, especially if they come from CHOP or another institution that's completely electronic, they're, they're afraid that they're not going to know how to, to function. And the reality is um, it's, it's actually in some ways easier once they get used to it because you have something right in front of you and you can flip back to the, you know, if they were seen last week or last month and you have it, it's just right there. You have their labs here, you have their immunizations, everything's just very accessible. You don't have to scroll through a computer screen. Also what's more challenging, but ultimately I think is, is a, a real opportunity is that because you don't have questions getting spit out of a computer or an algorithm, you have to have it up here or in your pocket or on a piece of paper because it's like you're just dropped on a desert island and, you know, whatever questions you want to ask, you have to think of. I mean, there's obviously an outline on the exam sheet, but it's it really you really have to think. It's much like counting and, and doing calculations without a calculator. Awesome to use the calculator, but you really need to know how to do the math. So I think it's that piece of it's not bad. What's challenging is, you know, the the um, it's not as organized in a lot of ways and you can't just, you know, pull things up in the computer and print out a nice sheet with their immunizations. It's it's handwritten. So it, it's not ideal um, in that regard. Um, and in previous institutions, even 20 plus years ago where I worked at Boston Children's and at St. Chris and NIH, we were computerized. And so it, I think it has its drawbacks in that sense. Um, but I actually think for students, as nervous as they are, I think they end up appreciating it because it's almost forces them to learn more, if that makes sense. Definitely. It's good to experience both styles of doing things. And it certainly makes sense that sometimes not having access to certain pieces of technology can actually make you more resourceful and also make it easier to connect with patients because you don't have a computer in, in the way. Well, true. I know when I have gone for my own exams and you have the person, you know, asking, you, blah, 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 you know, and they can't make eye contact with you because you can't look at a person and look at a screen. Whereas I can sit there and ask some questions and have this in front of me and just, and especially for the touchier questions, things that are a little more intrusive. Uh, the first thing I say to my students, take your pen and put it down. You can remember the answers for one patient for a short period of time. And ask some questions without jotting it down. Because if someone's asking you about, you know, are you sexually active? Do you do drugs? Do you, you know, and you're like this, what, how honest do you think people will be? Not very. 
So I think if I was, you know, and, and do you do drugs? I, I just, I'm sure there's a way to do it. That's more nuanced than that, but that makes it more challenging. Well, it goes back to the trust piece and it goes back to the connecting piece where if a patient really feels like you're on their side, they're going to feel more comfortable being honest with you. And part of that is that human connection more than just a patient clinician connection. Yeah. Yeah. Well, given all of your experience, we want to move into a section that's kind of clinical tips. So we're going to ask you for tips that we think NPs will love to hear. What tips do you have for bringing up a touchier subject like mental health or sexual health with kids and parents in the room? Well, it's interesting. This is something I talk with the students a lot. One, we, we saw an adolescent together yesterday because it was her first, uh, my student's first adolescent. And she's like, oh, I, I, can I just watch you? I'm like, absolutely. So go into the room. And that's one piece of advice. Put the pen down when you're asking the toucher questions. You don't ask the toucher ones until you build rapport. So, you know, the first thing is where do you go to school? What grade are you in? What's your favorite class? So you're trying to get connected, get a sense of the person and watch their body language kind of chill a little bit and ask if they go to the dentist and all those, those questions. And then as we get further along and you do it in a very nonchalant way, you know, who do you live with? You don't say, do you live with your mom and dad? Cause kids could live with, you know, just mom, just dad, grandparents, aunt, uncle, there's lots of different constellations of, of families. So you try to keep it open-ended. So how you ask the questions, I think makes it easier. So tell me who you live with, you know, um, anyone in the house smokes cigarettes? So I start with that, not just saying, do you smoke cigarettes? Anyone in the house makes smoke cigarettes? And they say no, or yes, or whatever. And, oh, and does anyone smoke weed? And you just make it like, I'm just asking, you know, how tall you are. You don't make it like it's some weighty kind of question. And then I, I usually start with the smoking and then uh, do you drink alcohol? If so, how often, you know, and, and then we, we talk about that, especially, you know, most of them are underage. So I talk about, well, you know, you know, you really have to be careful making good choices. And I particularly talk about, you know, making sure that you don't wander off from the crowd, you know, especially kids going off to college. I always talk with them and say, look, you need your people and you don't, you don't want to be the one lone person floating off. Cause that's always when things go bad. So some version of that, we talk about, you watch out for your friends. Hopefully they watch out for you and just have each other's back knowing that people will at times make the choices you don't want them to make, but making sure that they don't make a choice that really takes them down a dark road. So then I go into, to, into sexuality and, you know, are you sexually active? And if they say yes with men, women, or both. And again, just kind of like, just very nonchalant. And if you don't seem stressed or pressured, I think they are less so. Um, and then asking if they talk about they, they are sexually active, you try to find out, you know, well, if this kid's 16, how old's the person that you're in a relationship with? Is it a healthy relationship? And depending on different answers, it takes you down different avenues. So, you know, a kid who's like, no, 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 I'm fine. You know, then I, you don't ask a lot more questions, but you kind of you, you follow their lead. Um, you know, and then same for mental health. We have an assessment we do when they first, before they come into the room at where the PHQ, where they're basically answering, I don't know, 11 or 12 questions about how they're sleeping, how they're eating, how they feel. And based on those responses, you are going to ask more questions. That's excellent insight in terms of keeping it conversational, keeping it open-ended, letting them kind of guide you and easing into the conversation and seeing how it evolves. Would also love to hear your, your tips for educating parents about their children's conditions, medications, or treatment plans. 
yeah, some of the things are pretty straightforward for with parents. Like if it's a, a very clinical thing, for example, an ear infection, this medication, how to take it, dosing, uh, if they speak your language. Now, if they don't speak your language and you're in a small practice without computers and without being part of a large network where you can just ring someone up, that's always interesting. So I have Google Translate on my phone, so that which takes forever and I don't fully trust it, but it's better than you ask a patient a question and they say yes, because they're trying so hard to be compliant and they so appreciate your care. And you realize mm, they don't have the slightest idea what I said. And you can't send them home with to care for a child or give medication if they're really not understanding the appropriate dose or what. So I, they're so appreciative when you, I'll do Google Translate, whatever the language is, which in our practice is more Spanish, Russian, Ukrainian are kind of the biggies, a little bit of Portuguese. And then I will speak in, it will, it will change it to their language. They will speak back, but it just takes a while. So, you know, again, the 10 minutes turns into 20 or 25 and you have patients waiting, but you have to do what you have to do. Um, trickier things are sometimes, and one of the things I really like to do is teaching a parent, uh, helping a parent understand that mental health, if their child is struggling with anxiety, it's a real medical thing. They're not being a wuss. They're not being a difficult or a pain they really need help. So sometimes helping to educate a parent and advocate for that kid to me is a, a real uh, joy in primary care. And I feel like it's a really important part of our role. Sounds so great the way that you approach these conversations and the tools that you are utilizing to make sure that communication is really happening. Um, when you are communicating, how do you balance communicating with the parent and with the kid? Well, some of that depends on their age. Some of it depends on the child, if they're a special needs child, if they're not. Um, so I mostly try to make the, the target of my conversation the child, unless they're obviously an infant, and to pull the parent in. But when I see adolescents, I talk with adolescent and parent together, find out what the parent's concerned about, what the child's concerned about, go over medications, immunizations, and then I kick the parent to the curb and they wait in the waiting room while we do the exam and ask the touchier questions unless a parent refuses, but most times they pretty much understand that this is part of how we're trying to help this child develop. Because at 18, if they go to college, if they get a job, you're not gonna be going into that exam room with them. And they need to have the scaffolding and the support to be able to advocate for themselves and answer a healthcare professional. So that's a really important piece of, of what we do, I think, because I think we're teaching the child to advocate for themselves and the parent to let go a little bit, which sometimes is easier said than done. <laughs> it's, it's tricky, but certainly important. And especially in that transition from pediatric to adolescent care, that, that makes a lot of sense. Speaking of parents, how do you navigate discussing and implementing pediatric vaccinations when parents may have some concerns? Well, that's a particular, I've been amazed in the past few years. We were just having this discussion at work the other day because uh, I feel like all I did yesterday was diagnose patients with the flu. It's it's rampant at the moment. And interestingly, the, the percentages, I can tell you anecdotally, are down the number of patients who came for flu vaccines this year, way down. I think some of that's vaccine fatigue. I think some of it's, I don't know if it's politis, politicization, um, of uh, vaccines, if people are just over it, I, I don't know. But unfortunately, uh, it, it's I feel like it's been a more challenging battle in in recent years. But I just try to be honest and open, and you know. And then sometimes they'll say, "Well, do you get your kids vaccinated?" I'm like, "Yes, for every single thing that I can." Um, so you try to put it out there. Patients' responses can be varied. Um, I mean, parents. 
but in general, I just try to give them education, offer them educational information, and and just really encourage them to get vaccinated. I always think the question of would you do this for your own family member from patient or patient family member to provider is so interesting because it's really pushing the provider to talk to the person like, hey, you're someone I trust. Would you do this for a person that you love? So I'm sure that that's a quite an effective method for for getting people on board as well. Unlike people who don't get the flu vaccine because their hairdresser recommended they don't get it. I will say to them, like, I try to make it a joke and I'm like, you don't want me to be doing your hairstyle. So I don't think you want them to pick your medical care. And I just try to say it as a joke lightly, but it's really, you know, you don't go to your car mechanic and ask him about vaccines and you don't ask me to fix your car. Just, but you'd be amazed. <laughs> I can imagine that that sounds like it's more time of your day than maybe exactly. What tips do you have for educating parents on nutrition and dietary guidelines, especially in the context of of childhood obesity? Yeah, that's a challenging one. And some of that you kind of have to take the whole uh, picture into account. So if you're in an exam room and you're looking at, at a mom who's significantly overweight, you know, or obese, and, and then a kid who is oftentimes those are the most challenging ones to, to work with because you start asking questions of the kid about exercise and what they eat. And she's answering, Oh my gosh, he only drinks water. He only eats fruit and veggies. And I'm like, "Mm, it's something doesn't add up. So um, it, it's, it, that's a particular challenge. The families that are receptive, you know, we really try to talk about, we don't put kids on diets. I show them the growth chart. I try to be really like, look, I don't care what Mary weighs or your friend or whoever. It means nothing until we plot it on the growth chart. And I try to beat that into students as it was beaten into me when I was in NP school years ago, that it's, it's, that number means nothing until you put it in context. And when you show a kid that all of a sudden you were growing and then whoop, you jumped right up, how do we get you back on your curve? We're not going to diet. We want you to just make good choices. So some of it you tailor to to the, the situation and how receptive people are. There are weight reduction programs through like St. Chris and CHOP. So we try to encourage them to, to get involved in those. And I try to say, do make it realistic. Okay. If you're not a sports kid, not everybody's into, you know, organized sports. You don't have to. Do you have a dog? Walk your dog. Do you have a friend you can walk with? Can your mom walk with you? Everyone who does any kind of exercise, if you do it with someone else, you're more motivated, more likely to stick to it. So go walk at the local track, go one lap for today. You know, so I try to put those kinds of things out there um, and, you know, just keep, you, you don't want to make it so that when they come in, they're like, oh my God, they're, they, they don't want to be weighed. They're already stressed. I've had some parents who say, do not bring up their weight. And it's like, it's a challenge because what if they came in with black and blue marks? Am I supposed to pretend they're not there? It's, it's a part of your overall health. So I try to talk about it in a way that hopefully doesn't make them feel shamed or, or, or overly stressed, but to, to give some tips or or ideas. And sometimes we refer them to nutritionists. Again, some of it depends how open they and their family are to that. That's excellent advice. Numbers are only relevant if you put them into context important to incorporate lifestyle modifications, not just imposing a strict diet or forcing someone to exercise in a way that's not natural for them. And certainly it is important to, to talk about these things, even if it's difficult and, and touchy. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you for sharing all of that clinical wisdom. That was very um, insightful and interesting. We, we want to wrap up each of our shows by asking guests the same two questions. Okay. One is about the healthcare system more broadly, and the other is a bit of a personal reflection question. Okay. What changes would you like to see in the American healthcare system to improve patient care? 
I would love to see some of the barriers removed, um, especially for mental health, for people to, to be able to access that without long wait periods. And in addition for developmental assessments, that's one of our struggles. If you have a child that you see red flags that you think, you know, they may have, you know, uh, autism spectrum disorder or some other developmental concern, the, the wait can be at a children's hospital one to one and a half years. And telling a parent that, how do they access resources if they don't have a diagnosis? You can't. How do they get support? I also think sort of under the mental health scope, we, we have to do something about social media, you know, because the, this is what I see with kids that come into the office and it's like parents don't even say half the time, put the phone down. So then I'm the, the bad guy that I'm like, you know what, while we chat, why don't we just put your phone down so we can have a conversation? Um, so I almost feel like basic manners and formal expectations have gone out the window with social media that it's okay. You know, it, it, would you be talking on the phone when you're in, in a doctor's office? No, but you know, so I think mental health and developmental uh, assessments, trying to, to break those barriers would probably be at the top of my list just because they're incredibly difficult to access and it really impacts people and families. And it takes up a lot of time trying to coordinate those services for people. Absolutely. The access question, and even if there's the resource available, but it's not available for any reasonable amount of time, it's like the resource isn't available in the first place. So definitely hear that. Yeah. Your problem's either going to get worse or maybe it'll resolve by the time you get the services. So it's, it's still less than ideal. Right. But you definitely don't want it trending, trending more poorly. What is some advice you want everyone to hear or to walk away with? First of all, making sure that you get your regular health care, because the bottom line is it's so much easier to uh, anticipate problems, prevent problems, than to uh, treat the problems once it gets to that point. So continuing, you know, to get regular care. And the problem is oftentimes once we get into later adolescence and once people are out of college, people float away from care because, you know, you don't have sports forms to do. You don't need your driver's license form. You don't, the things that sort of reel people in. Um, so I think that's a, a, an important thing. And I always say, find a provider you trust. At the end of the day, it has to be someone you trust. It doesn't mean you can't ask them questions, that you can't challenge things, but if everything they say you question, there's not a sense of trust in there. So I think that's the most important thing is finding a provider for yourself or your kids who you feel comfortable and trusting in. That's excellent advice. Um, prevention is so much easier in some ways than treatment. And especially if you can find a relationship that has a lot of trust in it. It's, it's interesting as we, as we spoke to a lot of parents that have really trust-filled relationships for their children and have pediatricians that they see very consistently, we were saddened to see that they often don't have those same relationships for themselves. And it definitely does become trickier as you move from pediatric to adolescent to adult. It becomes more difficult to, to really establish those long-lasting relationships. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, sure. Before we close, is there anything that we haven't asked you about that you'd like to share? Mm, I don't think so. I think you covered a lot of territory, which was good in a short period of time. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Again, this wisdom is so valuable for, for folks listening in, and I feel like I learned a lot from this, so really appreciate it. Oh, thanks. Well, thanks, ladies. I enjoyed the opportunity. Thank you.